Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, also subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.substack.com to get episodes straight to your inbox. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not investment advice. Our guest today is Ellie Truesdell, founder and managing partner at New Fair Ventures, a venture capital fund centered on the modern eater and evolving American palate. Some of their investments include Made by Nacho, Midday Squares, Foxtrot, and Tecombi. We discuss her time at Whole Foods, how she ended up meeting Bobby Flay and founding Made by Nacho, and why she wanted to start a fund, how she thinks about investing in food and retail. Without further ado, here's Ellie. Ellie, thank you so much for joining me here on Consumer VC. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No, very glad to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure having you on the show, and I really appreciate you taking the time. So let's start from the beginning. Were you always attracted to nutrition, whole foods, and kind of buying products from the natural channels? I I love you phrasing it that way because so often people just ask me, were you always into food? And the answer is yes. Um, But I would say a question that I don't often get is, was it always whole foods? Was it always nutrition? And no, definitely not um, growing up as a kid. I would say I just loved food. I sort of loved everything about it, but I wasn't, we, I think I, I sort of ate it all growing up and I didn't have as much of a focus on sourcing and supply chain and what that could mean for nutrition. Um, So it really did take me working for um, and with actually a tiny produce startup. um, And that's not even the word to use. I I worked at a produce stand when I um, graduated from college and really just loved it. Like I, I enjoyed selling fruits and vegetables. I loved interacting with farmers that we were buying from. And that sort of, I think, motivated me to start reading a little bit more about the food system and agriculture. And uh, it was right around the time that Michael Pollan had written The Omnivore's Dilemma. I was reading his work and just very quickly got immersed in supply chain um, agriculture. And then I think sort of um, through all of that understood, okay, that actually connects to human health in a big way. Um, And once I identified Whole Foods as my 
mecca of where I wanted to work, which was the following year. So a year post-college. Um, once I started working for the company, I mean, they, especially at the time, did an amazing job um, training you in terms of sort of what it meant to adopt a Whole Foods lifestyle, not the brand Whole Foods, but like actually eating Whole Foods and plants and what that could do for your body. And that really transformed my relationship with food. I became um, really excited about nutrition and health and more than anything, plants and just eating delicious, great food that was um, sort of close to to its source and whole form. That's awesome. That's also really cool how um, Whole Foods um, really helped kind of shape you in terms of um, thinking about nutrition and what to eat um, and kind of everything um, around that. What were some of the um, learnings, would you say, from from Whole Foods? Whole Foods um, I, I understand like the learnings from a, from a personal perspective um, in terms of what you eat, but how about from a um, understanding like kind of how the food system, you know, works and everything around that? What were kind of like your lessons learned? Because I know you were, at, you were at Whole Foods for for a long time and eventually rose to become the global director of local brands and product innovation, but what were kind of like the learnings along the way? Yeah, I think one thing that's so interesting that I reflected on a lot once I was in and at Whole Foods for a number of years was that the year post-college, even in college and in undergrad, I was studying media. I was interested in food, travel, lifestyle. Um, and then I got a little bit more academically interested. I mentioned that year after um, graduating from college. And so sort of had this intellectual curiosity and was just reading a ton and taking it all in sort of outside of the industry. Once I started working for Whole Foods and in this really unique position, which I'm sure we'll talk about, as uh, both a forager and then later on overseeing the local and innovation program, um, I started to develop a really different perspective, which was from within the system itself and watching both a ton of young brands, but also farms, fishermen, um, you know, livestock, uh, husbandry, farmers, and understand their world a little bit differently than how I was reading about it more academically and, and in that um, position that was removed. So I think um, Whole Foods itself, like the organization and the company did a great job of immersing people in the mission, the connection to sourcing, um, the connection to local producers and to organics and why that's so important for environmental and human health. Um, but I think I had a really unique perspective and I was really lucky in my role um, overseeing local brands to every single day be sort of at the epicenter of this young consumer brand culture, but also um, very much in the center of sourcing local agricultural product and seeing what farmers went through um, sort of to get their food to us and what um, that meant for the supply chain. And so I developed, I think, my interpretation of like what goes into producing food and what's a requirement um, that is different probably than when, when you read about it. Obviously, it's like being being close enough to it, you recognize why um, certain people aren't getting an organic cer certification. You're recognizing why those certifications are really important. You're like, it's just become so much more nuanced once you're inside of an industry and watching people actually operating these businesses, which are really hard to run. So I, as your role as, you know, when you're uh, sourcing and, and collaborating with these local brands and looking at product innovation, what were maybe some of the product innovation that you, that, that you were seeing that was pretty 
uh, mind blowing in your sphere? Yeah, it's fun to look back. I say this a lot that today, you know, 2022, um, what was exciting or quote unquote disruptive, I'm saying with air quotes in food, like 15, 12 years ago is table stakes today. So it's actually really interesting to think through what was considered highly innovative. But on the other hand, I think it's really important to remind ourselves that there was a renaissance that was needed in American food. And I, you know, I was really lucky in the timing of my, um, growth at Whole Foods and in being in that forager role from, and then in my global position overseeing local from 2008 to 2017, because that really was when the natural organic foods industry had this incredible growth curve that was necessary. You know, like the big legacy food brands, the big strategics who we all know um, had not been disrupted had not been challenged yet. And, and so we, I was feel, you know, it was, it was such an amazing thing to be a part of. And with that, I think something, you know, I, I use brands such as Sir Kensington's as a great example today, their product lineup might not look that innovative, but it really was different to be looking at whole uh, tomatoes, not using high fructose corn syrup, knowing where they were buying those tomatoes um, and really like dissecting an ingredient deck that that was innovative. They continuously got better. I worked really closely with the Sir Kensington's team on one of their most interesting products, their Fabinase, which is their vegan mayo product where they identified aquafaba, the byproduct of chickpeas, as a source to uh, an egg replacement or an egg substitute. And they told me about that early days of, oh my gosh, we've just found this amazing protein source to make a vegan mayo. Um, It's called uh, aquafaba. They're sort of educating me on this. But as they were telling me, I thought it was really interesting that there must be any number of hummus producers in the country who are creating a byproduct of, of, you know, aquafaba, um, through their production. So we went out and I got them connected to six or seven hummus producers that sold to whole foods. Turns out that only one of them was actually soaking, drying and soaking their chickpeas and then cooking them. It was really interesting to learn that a couple of people had other processes, which were not nearly as, um, sort of traditional where they were just reconstituting, chickpea flour. Um, and it shows in the quality of the product. I won't name any brands here, but, um, so anyhow, Sir Kensington's ended up partnering with that first, uh, hummus producer and buying their aquafaba or taking what was otherwise their waste and, and creating a vegan mayo. So I think that was just one example, but I think categorically, I mean, it's important to sort of like look back and think what was exciting and, and amazing in those early days, cold brew was not a category. I mean, green juice came and went during my my years. Coconut water, uh, kombucha, I think plant-based yogurt was in its early days. It still maybe even ha- hasn't had its moment. Um, and then I think there were some really interesting, uh, where, where I'm still sort of most excited and um, feel really proud to be a part of the early days was in some of the indoor controlled ag um, and these more novel approaches to farming that are um, far less resource intensive. So, um, you know, name your indoor farm, Gotham Greens, Bowery, Plenty. They're all doing really interesting things. Smallhold, who's, um, you know, largely a a consumer brand for mushrooms, but who's farming in this uh, tech enabled way. And that's actually one thing I, I, 
always really um, loved and thought was pretty interesting and is still a thesis that we're looking at of commodities and commodity categories that have started to operate and, and utilize the CPG playbook. Smallhold being a great example of, you know, their mushroom business, largely in, in produce and in mushrooms, there's, it's pretty um, unbranded and, and feels like a, a commodity, but they are growing specialty mushrooms that are delicious, highly differentiated, and they have this amazing um, consumer brand. I think Bowery Farming has been able to do the same thing. I think Luke's Lobster has been able to do that in lobster and seafood where you don't see that much. So we're watching different parts of the store start to um, take on what the middle of the store does very well. No, and I first of all, I really appreciate those examples, and to and, and to also say that you know things that you know were pretty um, were pretty innovative back you know ten um, twelve years ago. Um, now it kind of seems like table stakes, um, and I think that also what what and I talked about this with uh, Caitlin Smith when he had. When I had her on the podcast, founders of of uh, Simple Mills, but how also like the consumer has just become a lot more aware too um, about ingredient choices and kind of doing their research and really understanding you know what types of foods they actually want to eat and not, and really kind of being almost skeptical about brands, um, just be, becoming because they want to be very like maniacal about what ingredients they're actually using. Absolutely. We talk a lot about this at New Fair, um, just that the consumer today is so much more educated, informed, and just is expecting that much more from their food in terms of both brand and the experience that they're getting from that food. So we um, we take a much sort of more skeptical eye to young consumer brands today, just for that exact reason. So why did you end up leaving Whole Foods to become the CEO of Canopy Foods? So at the end of 2017, um, you know, I'd been almost 10 years at Whole Foods. My pretty much entire career post-college had had such an amazing run there. Um, and the acquisition from Amazon had gone through was was formalized. And I'd already been feeling for that year that enough was shifting in terms of um, the culture and and some of the sentiment. And honestly, by necessity, Wall Street was putting a lot of pressure on Whole Foods. There was been had been so much competition um, in, let's say, the, the three years prior to the Amazon acquisition that, um, that we were f- all feeling it internally. And the, the company was making a number of changes. I think I always try to say they were necessary changes. And, and so think a lot of those things needed to happen, maybe could have happened differently. But for me, it was a really good motivation and push to say, okay, I think now's the time to move on. Um, there was a lot of centralization happening uh, over the course of those years that for me, uh, leaving and being in a position that was um, overseeing the local program nationally was tough. It was it was really transforming the way that we could operate. And so that was a driving or motivating factor. But also I just saw there being a lot of opportunities and um, other parts of the food system that maybe needed attention. So I, I mentioned this, like I feel so lucky that I was in the role that I was, um, you know, really supporting and driving young consumer brands from 2008 to 2017. But what I saw during that nine, 10 year arc was the largest and biggest challenge all of these brands have is their co-packers. Um, number one issue 
pretty much across any founder that I would speak with, especially when we were trying to to scale them or grow them from a single region to multi-region or to go national with Whole Foods was my co-packer is a nightmare. I'm probably not going to be able to either, you know, meet that timeline or they'd bring us a product that looked unrecognizable to their first product when they'd fully commercialized and scaled um, and had moved into, you know, a, a manufacturer of a larger size. They just like weren't um, responding to where the market had gone in terms of product integrity and quote unquote, better for you brands. So I, this, like before I ever used the word thesis, I guess I had a thesis then that, um, that upstream there is, we were creating a huge bottleneck. If you've seen this massive proliferation in better brands, higher integrity food products, um, but they can't scale because they don't have the manufacturing partners uh, to do that with, then there's going to be a huge need for innovation, investment, and attention on the co-packing layer. So I'd already been thinking a lot about that. And I'm sort of a person who always wants to address problems and, and solutions. And I think a lot of people ask me, you know, why wouldn't you have just gone to a single brand or why wouldn't you have just started a company, a food company, like you're so well equipped to do it after your 10 years at Whole Foods. And it was really my answer there was I didn't see there being a major white space or a need where I felt like there was a major need was further upstream in supporting and creating the infrastructure to drive the industry forward at scale. Um, so simultaneously to, um, People I'd worked with prior founders who were um, had had brands with us at Whole Foods in years prior had uh, talked to me about this company they were building, Canopy Foods, which was addressing you know just that it was sort of in its um, ideal state meant to be a strategic co-packer, not only uh, scaling products with integrity and um, in the way that we felt like the industry needed, but also you've got this suite of services with people on staff who are going to help you with brand strategy, um, you know, uh, soon enough, omni-channel execution, all the things that, that you might need in addition to straight manufacturing. So that really attracted me um, as a business and, and decided to make the move over there. I also was lucky to carve out some major flexibility in making that move um, so that I could could take an advisory role with a fund, um, which I ended up taking with Almanac, the, the venture fund that I eventually joined full time. Um, but that was important to me because as I was leaving Whole Foods, I had a ton of opportunity in VC and private equity. And frankly, I didn't even really get it at, um, at the time. I wasn't, <laughs> I was like pretty naive to the value I'd created and like the inherent deal flow that was my life. Um, and so, so I was attracted to Canopy for a couple of reasons. I understood and really bought into the purpose and the mission of the, the company, thought it was um, an exciting opportunity for me to really learn a different side, side of the business and a different part of the value chain. And um, I guess lastly, had some flexibility to join a fund as an advisor and dip my toe in that world to see what it was like. What was maybe part of the attraction that maybe venture capital, even though you didn't come from um, a VC background, what kind of interested you there? And what were kind of your first impression, you know, having this advisory role at a fund? And um, and what did you really enjoy about it? It was really instructive having the time to dip my toe or act as an advisor and learn as I, as I did over those months. Um because I really didn't have a sense of, of 
where my time would be spent um, if if I were to join a VC. And so I think what I quickly learned that people had been telling me for a long time, but I just didn't see it yet or, or didn't have the imagination for was so much of the work that you've been doing at Whole Foods is going to translate and is really applicable um, to the world of venture. And that immediately became apparent that I could step in at operational value um, offer a lot of strategic support to these consumer brands and in some places, uh, marketplaces or technologies that we were invested in, but that I could, um, I could work really closely with founders and with teams to help them across a variety of points in their business. As I was continuing to get, um, the experience at Canopy, that became really valuable to advise and guide on co-packing management, um, supply chain, logistics, some of those pieces and, and navigating, um, you know, your relationship with your co-packer. Uh, but, uh, also from my whole foods days, just a lot in terms of brand strategy and positioning a lot in terms of wholesale distribution and even sales. I mean, that's become a huge piece to where I can be helpful is hopefully getting you some interest from buyers. Um, but also thinking through channel strategy and how you should navigate that. Um, and then I guess the other big one is in team hiring and recruitment. That's just always been something that I really care about is staying in touch with a lot of people in the industry. And, um, I sort of joke that I moonlight as a recruiter because a lot, a lot of people come to me when they're looking to either hire for a position or when people are getting ready to leave or move elsewhere. Um, I feel lucky to often be a person people call and I try to make myself really available for that because it's become a huge asset. It's such a, um, such probably if there's, if there's anything you can do to help your portfolio more, it's help them land an excellent hire. Um, and so I, I try to do that as much as I can for the portfolio now. And I, and I learned that along the way at Almanac. So I think on the portfolio management and just operating profile, I immediately could plug in, but it was such a nice, um, I was lucky to have the chance to then learn all of the other pieces of how you structure a fund, how you think about um, your position, your strategy, your check size, and then what your fund sort of stands for when you combine it all. No, and I appreciate that. I mean, what I what I also find really um, quite interesting is when I guess you get more involved with with Almanac and eventually go you know full time, become a full time investor, you then also start a brand. Um, made by Nacho, which I know you said initially when you left Whole Foods, you didn't think they think there was actually not that the, that the real pain point was more on the infrastructure side and on the brand side. How did you meet Bobby Flay? How did this all happen with Made by Nacho? And what's kind of like the like the founding story? And why did you think that there was a space within um, cat food that you thought was um, worth exploring? Yes, I n- never would have predicted that the the brand I did start would be in non-human food, especially in cat. So I I was also lucky to work over my years at Whole Foods with a ton of chefs. I helped launch the Roberta's Frozen Pizza line. I worked with the Momofuku team, the Blue Hill team, which is how I ended up landing at Almanac, the venture fund, um, which is associated or is founded by David Barber of Blue Hill. And so um, worked with a lot of chefs and and was sort of known in in the culinary world of if you're going to look to launch a consumer brand, you need to talk to this woman, Elliot Whole Foods. So 
I had that reputation. Um, I met Bobby Flay probably five years ago now. Um, it was right around the time I was leaving Whole Foods. He'd heard of me. I, you know, we just knew a lot of the same people. Um, and as, as we got to know each other, he's sort of like, listen, if you're, if I'm going to do anything in consumer, um, you're going to be my first phone call. And in my mind, you know, you sort of think about him, his reputation. You're like, all right, he's going to call me about a barbecue sauce or a spice rub, and I'm not going to be that interested. And (laughs) that's that. But, um, a few, you know, months later, this is a few months after me leaving Whole Foods, he called me about this idea he had with his cat, Bobby, I'll say Bobby going forward, Bobby Flay, chef Bobby Flay is, um, a huge cat lover always has been. And he has an amazing cat named Nacho Flay, who is a massive orange Maine Coon. He's beautiful. He has this really amazing authoritative presence and he has 250,000 followers on Instagram. He's his own little pet celebrity. So Bobby is getting all these phone calls from big pet food companies offering him licensing and endorsement deals for Nacho specifically, not for Bobby, but for Nacho. And he is sort of like, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to do any of this. If, if I do anything with Nacho, I really want to build it. And I think at the same time, he was sort of recognizing that he didn't he, you know, he feeds people for a living every day. He has for 30 years and he still wasn't totally clear on what he should be feeding Nacho. Um, and felt like he needed to do a little bit of research of what, you know, the brand was that he was feeding him. Should he feel confident in it in the first place? And I think quickly learned that number one, cats are obligate carnivores. Like they, all they really need is meat. Meat is the number one and should be the number one, um, thing in their diets. And then second is that cats have a lot of trouble with hydration. Um, your vet almost always is going to tell you, are you getting them enough water? Are you sort of tricking them or manipulating them to make sure that they're getting, uh, the hydration they need? Cause, cause cats are tough. They often won't just drink water. So he knew those two things were important and he'd been cooking a lot for, um, for Nacho and for his other cat, Stella, who's a bit younger, um, and recognized there were a lot of tricks that he'd been using in the kitchen that could be interesting if he were to develop a product. So he he asks me about this and whether I thought it was interesting. And as I started looking into pet, I was, you know, I was very aware of the fact that a lot of the human food trends and, and a lot of the movement that we had helped seed and accelerate in natural organic food at Whole Foods over my years was starting to enter the pet arena. That was obvious and clear. But what I also noticed is that that was largely devoted to dog. Um, And then once I started researching it, it was amazing to me to learn some of the stats um, to back that up, that for every dollar invested in pet, 95 cents goes to dog. So that five cents isn't even just for cat, it's for all other pet categories. So, So clearly you're seeing an imbalance. And the other thing that I quickly learned is that the reason so few people go into cat is that cats are notoriously finicky. Um, They are quote unquote picky eaters. And so it's hard to get cat parents to switch, which is why a lot of the legacy brands have been so successful because they put a ton of palatins in the food, um, which unfortunately is really bad for your cat. It's, it's, you know, the equivalent to junk food um, for your pet but they've, they've commanded all of the market share. And so all of those things together made me really interested in the prospect along with, okay, now you've got Nacho 
Nacho's 250,000 Instagram following, let alone his other channels. And you've got Bobby's platform. Like this is a really interesting way to launch a company where we expect we already have 250,000 avid interested customers. um, And we can use Bobby's platform to, to um, elevate that. And so it just became a really exciting proposition. There needed to be a better cat food that was meeting a lot of um, sort of the things that I care about when it comes to supply chain integrity, uh, sourcing, ingredient standards. And um, there was a huge opportunity to build a really fun modern brand with Nacho as our figurehead CEO founder face. That's awesome. That's like, that's really cool. I, I also, I really appreciate also the reasons why there hasn't been too many disruptive cat food uh, brands and especially interesting. It, may, it makes sense how, you know, 95 cents on the dollar, a dollar goes to um, dogs. I mean, I have a dog. Um, and every time I go to the pet store, I felt I, I, I kind of feel that that 95 cents, if you know what I mean, um, because it's so, so dog oriented. What I also thought was kind of fascinating. I had, I did do a panel. I hosted a panel all about with three investors that invest in pet food. And one investor said that the reason why, like he, I think he's, he's a backer of, uh, of a dog food company. And the reason why that, um, he and many of the other kind of VCs that he talked to don't really look at cat food is just because, um, it's the amount of that, that, that cats eat is so much smaller in terms of like, in terms of dogs, obviously cats are smaller animals. And so your kind of size in terms of what you can, um, it's, it's just a lot smaller than dogs, which I think that's actually a really interesting position for maybe Nacho because then there might not be a, a many more VCs backing maybe competitors or what have you. It Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting because to me that continues to make it that much more compelling of so many people are, are sort of taking that angle of how there's no, there's a smaller market there. And it, it leaves a wide open opportunity that we're really excited to be, you know, sort of carving out our, our stake. Um, and that we've, we've had um, some really nice early growth, I think because of that, because so few people have taken on the challenge. Let, I mean, now you have, um, you know, made by Nacho with, with Bobby Flay. What actually then, um, had you and kind of convinced you to actually go on your own. I know it was a couple of years later, but kind of go on your own and start New Fair. And what was kind of that journey been like so far? Yeah, I think so much of it has been partially driven by Made by Nacho and building that to um, this point of, of early success uh, with Hallie, my co-founder, who I should certainly mention has been such a huge and critical piece to the story, um, joined me at Canopy Foods and the two of us have been working together ever since, which is now almost five years. And so I think um, as as I had the experience at Canopy building a layer um, of sort of just operational um, muscle and understanding of that part, that piece of the value chain, um, then having the chance to, to be at Almanac for a few years and being really close to, uh, what it looked like to run a fund and to add value to our portfolio, um, layering in the made by Nacho work and really being close to an omni-channel brand. I should have mentioned this as well. Another thing that really attracted me to made by Nacho and co-founding um, the company with Bobby was having the chance to learn a D2C first business firsthand. I had not had that experience before. And so much of my career is just sort of seeing something that I haven't had the chance to do before and going after it and learning and then 
using that the next time around. And so um, that was a huge piece to starting Made by Nacho and it from day one being an omni-channel business. Um, we launched D2C April 2021 and two weeks after in an exclusive national uh, rollout with PetSmart in 1,400 doors in the U.S. And so that's been really uh, critical sort of for my understanding of omni-channel businesses, but but pretty quickly felt like, okay, I have a better handle now on the digital and e-com side of these consumer brands, um, feel really proud of what we've done at Made by Nacho, and have a really unique perspective on food and food investing that I want to, to bring and build out independently. Um, and so as I started to sort of feel that and was very lucky to have the support of my last GP of David to, to go out and do this, um, independently, I think I, I wanted to make sure that we were building a fund that was really, really devoted to being hands-on value add. And like, that's the only way we would want to do it. So I think there's a huge shift going on in early stage investing, which is, many founders relying on either former founders who are investing now or former operators and largely not interested in the generalist ivory tower hands-off checks. Um, There's just sort of been a a bit of a transition there. And I feel lucky and think that we really represent that type of investor who's coming in, who's had a ton of operational experience, has had a really, really unique 10 years at the center of Whole Foods, um, you know, seeding and accelerating a lot of these young brands and and hopefully um, contributing to their success where you've got that now on your cap table. So all of those pieces combined, plus having a pretty clear vision on where I think food and the food system is headed in uh, the future, just made me feel like it was time to go after new fare, um, and, and raise a fund and was lucky to have a lot of people, um, encouraging that and, and, you know, some early, uh, investors, including Bobby and and others who were encouraging of me going out on my own and, and building this independently. Do you also find, um, and I appreciate you talking about kind of the shift in terms of the entrepreneur's mindset of, Hey, we actually want maybe more of a strategic investor, strategic meaning they can, they can add value. Um, not strategic as in we, we work, we work for Mondelez or like a corporate, um, uh, a, a corporation, not that like that, obviously that, that that's valuable in, in its own right, but strategic as in, um, someone that has kind of operational experience period, um, within food and bed. Are you also finding that, um, versus a generalist, are you also finding that they're now, um, especially with, you know, CPG, um, founders, um, that are there looking for, uh, investors that maybe are maybe a a bit more retail focused and centric and maybe understand retail as opposed to only understanding, you know, e e e-commerce and and D2C? Yes. I think uh, tackling the first part of the question, it's really interesting to think about what I believe was a little bit of a few years ago movement in corporate VCs, um, you know, quickly standing up an approach and a strategy and investing in companies. And obviously lots of those still remain and are around and are investing. But I think there's now been enough um, track record there for young brands to know that doesn't always mean I end up getting acquired. Often it means it may muddy the waters for a future acquisition if I'm not really careful about the terms. 
And um, I think in a lot of cases, they're just not able to be nearly as strategic or value-add or operational as they wish that they could be. Um, And that's just a function of size. If you're a massive um, multi-multi-billion dollar company who manages, you know, brands globally, it's really hard to plug into a sub $5 million <laughs> ARR business and, and do anything, right? So, so there's been a little bit of um, maybe a transition in how founders and young businesses think about strategic VCs and whether they engage with them. And that's put us in a great position of, I, I hope and think that by reputation and by how much value we've been able to add, both through the Almanac portfolio, but you know, from the 10 years at Whole Foods and the number of brands and founders I touched, um, and now in having uh, almost a year of our new fair por- portfolio and what we've been able to do there, that has really helped just make a case for um, why you'd want to bring someone like us on. And I think food is uh, pretty specific in that as well. Of It's really, really helpful to have people who are empathetic and understand this business and how hard it is and get that there are shelf life and perishability <laughs> considerations that other, other businesses don't go through. And then in terms of, yeah, wholesale retail, I think that's a really astute, something I don't actually mention enough. Um, people are coming back and recognizing true omni-channel businesses are critical and we only invest in in brands and companies that are are omnichannel in fact i heard someone say once that we're going to all look back at this moment in time when we were saying omnichannel so much and think it was like the period when they were saying the color tv that it, it just in the future like we won't it, it will just be everything it will be multi-channel is the way that we do business and so um we're we're very bullish on that um but I think that we've been able to hopefully already really have a track record in how much we can do to accelerate um, brands and businesses in a way that puts us in a, a good position. I he- I've heard from a few investors who you know uh, maybe have a similar focus to yours, investing in in, in food po- products um, around you know the the better for you space name, name the category. And you know, that if it's better for you, maybe there's some attraction to invest in, um, invest in it. But, um, what kind of the sweet spot is finding, you know, products that, you know, can definitely serve the natural channels, but also can, can conserve, uh, can also serve the conventional channels, the Walmarts, the targets, the Kroger's. Um, and, I wonder. I know you come from, you know, the the, the natural, um, the, the, obviously the the natural uh, space um, at you know Whole Foods. How do you also think about channel selection when when it comes to conventional? I know there's conventional now changed quite dramatically over the past few years. Um, there's uh, retailers, the conventional retailers are um, a lot more open to bringing out in, in natural products. Just how do you think about the conventional channel and about how it's changed um, and when it actually might make sense for a brand to enter it? I think it's changed significantly and it makes me really proud of what we did at Whole Foods over those years. I, I think that um, there was such an amazing infrastructure and platform that we built in the local program and largely the regional and global um, interaction that that 
Whole Foods uh, was able to create, driven by people like Errol Schweitzer and others on the global team, and then in regions by various foragers and lots of different people. But I, I think that what excites me is that where there is the most growth in natural and organic uh, for CPG brands is in conventional and in mass now. And what's exciting to me there is that like that's that was the whole point, right? Like the hope is to get more people um, eating foods and um, buying from brands that are offering them better options and sort of like that are going to be more nutritious um, and more healthful to replace what they were eating before. And so I get really excited when I think about that. Um, I also think that a lot of conventional retailers have done a really good job of stepping in and and playing that role um, and doubling down on their interest in natural and organic. I say that primarily, I mean, the biggest uh, example of that and the retailer doing it probably the best right now is Walmart. I hear that from so many different brands that they are getting such commitments from um, Walmart buyers in order to both. I think they recognize that premiumization in food is very much happening, that this younger consumer, Gen Z and millennials spend more money on food than any other generation in history. Um, They care a ton about what they're putting in their bodies, which we talked about earlier. And so Um, I think Walmart's done a great job of going after the young, exciting brands and, and not just, um, with sort of empty promises They're they are upholding that relationship and continuing to give them great shelf space and sort of subsidize them to a certain degree to, to make it work. Um, other conventional grocers, I think, are attempting that, but maybe haven't quite gotten it right. The one thing that um, is often overlooked at h- how the program at Whole Foods was so effective is that we had really unique um, payment terms, insurance requirements, what we would offer in terms of shelf space and demo um, and different marketing opportunities to young emerging local brands that if you just try to sort of like turn on, we, we now care about local at a big box retailer that, that just doesn't, um, work. So it was the programs that we built at Whole Foods were really thoughtful. They were very specific. Um, but I have been impressed by a lot of conventional retailers. And I think if you more than anything for brands, if you can identify and strike a relationship with a buyer who you can tell is, totally committed to and hopefully has the support of some larger uh, leadership and people around them because it it does get you in trouble if it's just with one individual buyer that you have a relationship. But if you get the sense that a retailer is doubling down on your offering and is really committed to um, what I expect would be a sort of better for you brand in the category, then take advantage of that. and, And, you know, that will only lead to further growth and and what as I said early on is exciting is like getting yourself in more american households i really like that thought um what i think also needs to be mentioned is too is like it's so hard to just get into a retailer as a brand um uh just getting the kind of the, the, the buyer on board and kind of every on board to actually get to, uh, to give you sh- uh, shelf space how should brands approach um since i know you know you you came from, from uh, you came from obviously working at one of the premier retailers. How should a brand approach getting into a retailer, and also thinking about which the right retailer should be for their brand? 
It's a big question. Um, I think I always recommend to brands or teams or founders that they should make their ideal go-to-market, their ideal list of retail partners that they want to go after, um, and and make sure you know who's really at the bottom of that list. And if that at the very very bottom you've got um, interest or someone reaching out to you questioning, is that still the right retail outlet for you? So meaning just like, don't jump at any buyer who's interested in your product. We, I had this conversation a lot with our portfolio and other brands seeking advice of, you know, should we jump at this particular um, C-store or club uh, program that wants us, even if it doesn't really like squarely fit in our customer profile and we're going to be at 50%, um, you know, SRP of where we are with our natural, like you've got to consider all of these things. So trying to come out with a, a proactive plan, being nimble and flexible in that, like, listen, if your number three retailer is really excited about you, that's great. But if your number 10 is, is who, um, you launch with, that could just be, that, that may not be setting you up well for success. So I think there's a lot of different things to consider. And then in terms of just getting a buyer excited, oof, it's so hard. I mean, obviously, if you can get a warm welcome, that's something. But more than anything, and this is hard to manufacture or, or fabricate, but you need the buyer to feel like it's their discovery. <laughs> they're like They're like part of the journey with you. Yes. Like if you're just, and this is the same with fundraising. I mean, I joke about this all the time. It's just human nature. Like if people think that I'm not asking them to invest in something and they found, find out about it otherwise, and I haven't asked them, it's like, Oh, well, why aren't I getting in on this? You know? Um, and similarly it's, if a brand can somehow make themselves known, which is why I think a lot of digital only brands for a while had such appeal from wholesale buyers. It's like, what do you mean you don't want to be on shelf at Whole Foods? And you know, you're only strictly D to C that, that there's something in terms of that scarcity. That's of course, very motivating. Um, it can't always work with a buyer. How do you do that? But on the other hand, if you can meet them in a trade show, if you can meet them in sort of a more unique environment where you get to connect with them, to pitch them your story, have them feel especially uh, grounded in your narrative and and hopefully what's a really exciting um, founder journey and, and reason for being, then that's going to get them excited. No, I... I- I love that. I love that. I mean, I just, I just, um, just, these are great tips in terms of actually trying to get, um, into a retail store or, or into, uh, a few different retails. Um, how do you think at new fair, you, you said something, I think really interesting earlier about, you know, what kind of causes a trend to have its moment, right. Or, 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 or what are kind of like the maybe early inkling inklings, um, how do you think overall about when you like interviewing a co- uh, like seeing a company? Because of course you're you're investing, you know, at the very early stages. How do you think about um, what has to go right in order for this to succeed? And kind of the category as well, like like what kind of causes that that trend to kind of have a moment? I get this question a lot, uh, and it's hard to answer because it is so many different things. I think especially in food. In many ways, food is a little bit lower barrier to entry, right? It's it's easier to develop a food product than it is a tech product or um, even maybe an apparel product at scale. So 
there is an element of that puts the pressure on so many other parts to the business. Um, and it means that the product needs to be absolutely exceptional um, so that a consumer has a reason or a motivation to buy it um, outside of just making it or recreating it at home. But in terms of what can become sort of a trend or just move in that direction, it's so much of it. I think I have a hard time answering the question because it's for me, like the number of reps, I see so many different brands, types of food, different food products. And I have now for 15 years, um, that it allows me to have a better immediate reaction of, is this something that is highly exceptional can sort of rise above, um, the, the noise. And I think, I think it's just so many elements. It's then understanding the team, the founder, their relationships with their co-packer and the manufacturer. Is there a a raw material or a supply chain component that's going to be really unique and exceptional? Um, So probably less of a specific answer there, but it's so many different pieces. And then there are just certain levels. Like right now I'm generally excited about upcycled ingredients and closed loop circular economy, um, utilizing waste. That's a general movement. And then we're going to really have to identify, is there actually a brand that can win there? Is it more upstream and that there's, there are going to be a really interesting moment for manufacturers who are able to do that particularly well. And you start to, to think about those different components. I appreciate that because um, I, I was about to ask you what what are maybe some trends that you're um, or movements that maybe you're bullish on or kind of pay attention to that you still think are are quite small that maybe hasn't have them hasn't had a moment. So I think we've I think you've also just nailed down a a couple there, but if there's others too, um, feel free to share. Sure. That, that is a big one. We are looking a lot at, um, upcycled ingredients and waste streams. Um, but as I mentioned, I think there's a a question of whether we'll be most excited about a brand or maybe more the infrastructure, um, that's fueling that because the hope and, and my prediction is that upcycled ingredients is going to become table stakes and hopefully will be in every private label product and will be, um, ubiquitous across brands, not just a single brand that's using. Um, So that's pretty interesting. Um, We're really bullish on global flavors and uh, founder-driven brands that are utilizing, you know, really unique international flavor profiles um, to build product portfolios. That's um, three of the investments we've made to date have, have represented that. And I think just a stat I use a lot is that in 1970. 90% 90% of the U.S. was white, and today we're 42% racially diverse, which is so exciting on just a general palette level. We've become, by consequence, we have become collectively um, that much more interesting in terms of our palate and how America eats in terms of flavors and and willingness to try um, new things. And so I we are very, very excited about um those businesses continuing to thrive and think there's a lot of, of room. Um, and then I think, you know, a lot of what we think about is uh, fresh snacking and sort of new formats and people eating more in short form and on the go, uh, whether we like it or not, but how we can um, hopefully invest in, in those products that are still really good for and, and offer sort of like the nutrition you want on the go and in a unique format. No, I, 
I, I appreciate that. I mean, also, like, I know one of the main value adds or maybe part of your aha moment in food in terms of where, like, a need was, was, was um, you know, having a great relationship with your co-packer and, and being able to scale. Um, how do you also think about when a brand should vertically integrate versus working with a co-packer? Because I know, for example, you're in Midday Squares, had them on the show. They're completely vertically integrated, as I understand it. Um, um, and also, how do you think about the value you can add um, where it seemed like part of maybe the original thesis was we're really good at finding you know, um, a, a great co-packer for you or kind of understanding maybe that layer of infrastructure a bit better. How do you think about that as it relates to new fare? It's very specific to the business. That example is a great one of Midday Squares because that really attracted us to invest in the company because we knew, okay, you've gone to 24, 26 co-packers. None of them can recreate this product the way that you want it. We, we loved that. That's a question of quality and integrity that they weren't going to find anywhere else. So they built it themselves. So that was really attractive. Um, I think we also, though, we go pretty, um, our, our portfolio is uh, broad in that we're also invested in a company called Arc Foods, which when you talk about vertical integration, they're all the way down to everything but the farmland. So they own the seeds, they contract specifically with farmers, they buy that uh, offtake from them every year and they resell, um, both on sort of the straight produce side of things. They sell shishito peppers and honey nut squash and heirloom cherry tomatoes. And they also do value added products that they sell as ready to heat and ready to eat meals. And so that's even, you know, sort of more intense on the vertical integration side, but that's their business. They have agricultural, uh, background that, that was their family business, prior. And so, um, I think that, that gave us comfort there. And then there are a couple, um, businesses in the portfolio who rely on co-packers and that feels more appropriate to, you know, how they're building their business. Um, another brand that I love that I think their product quality is exceptional is actual veggies. They make frozen veggie burgers that are whole foods and very much actual veggies, just as the name says. And and they've done a great job building out um, the right relationship with their co-packers to hopefully have a little bit of a moat there. But that's always a question of like, can someone recreate this? So it is dependent on the team, the product profile, and, and then how that sets them up for success. I, I also really appreciate that in terms of analyzing, all right, we're not just going to invest in brands that maybe um have co-packers um but also like where does it actually make sense to vertically integrate when it doesn't um ellie this has been such a super conversation thank you so much for your time thank you no this is so fun thanks for having me mike and there you have it it was such a pleasure chatting with ellie i hope you all enjoyed listening if you also love this content and learning more about consumer startups and vc subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.substack.com also available in show notes thanks for listening